Hello everyone and welcome to Avantika Designering Series or ADS as we like to call it. Every week on Wednesday, we feature design and technology leaders who share their professional journey, their thoughts on their domain of work and designering where the world of design and engineering meet. Make sure you follow us on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. And with that, let's continue with your show. What is the essence of design? If you look around you and observe the everyday products that you use, you will see that everything is impeccable. Well, a good design is not just an accident. For a product to achieve extensive recognition and acceptance as a convenient product, designers go through a series of processes, ranging from technological aspects to the usability and of course the aesthetics as well. And a good design is something that goes beyond one's success story. Today, on World Industrial Design Day, we get into conversation with David Kosuma, who leads as Vice President of Research at Tupperware and President-Elect at the World Design Organization. He is the classic example how industrial designers weave our daily lives and how their jobs go beyond designing beautiful things and making systems effective for a more practical and efficient world. David has led the R&D team for Tupperware, where he led his team to develop innovative products and think out of the containers. Not only did he bring a wave of disruption to Tupperware, but his creative contribution to the organization introduced a way of lifestyle that has impacted millions around the globe. With his resilience to help the community grow, he mentors the young society of industrial designers and young professionals at the World Design Organization to uplift the world that is socially and environmentally stable. Without wasting any time, let's dive into the first part of the conversation with him on our special episode for World Industrial Design Day. Hello, David, and welcome to Avantika Designering Series podcast. Uh, we are glad that you are here uh, celebrating along with us a special occasion, the World Industrial Design Day. And who better than the leadership from World Design Organization and someone who spent uh, his entire career in industrial design. We welcome you to show and we are excited to do this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Rohit. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, I want to just um, welcome everyone on behalf of the World Design Organization uh, to wish you all a very happy WIDD or World Industrial Design Day. Um, also, I want to just make a quick mention to thank Sahil Jain. He is a member of the WDO Young Designer Circle who had originally invited me to be on this show. And also thank you to the students at uh, Avantika and all the fans of your show who have reached out and voiced their interest in this segment. So I'm really, really pleased to be here. Thank you so much for that appreciation, David. 
So to set the tone uh, and start our discussion on the World Industrial Design Day, let's start with the importance of the field in the pandemic-struck world. How do you think is design combating this? Yes, uh, the pandemic is um, a serious time that we're all experiencing right now. Uh, these are definitely unprecedented times for the world. Uh, but uh, as you know, a time of crisis is also a time of opportunity, especially for the design profession, uh, to show how we can have some impact on the world. And I do believe that design has a strong role to play. Uh, to give you a little bit of background, in March of this year, WDO launched an initiative uh, which was in partnership with both IBM as well as Design for America uh, to create a global mobilization effort. And this was specifically for COVID-19 to look at how design could be used to resolve some of the issues that were coming out of the pandemic. We invited designers from around the world um, and it was pretty amazing in uh, less than 24 hour turnaround. We had more than 180 challenge statements that we ended up clustering and then ended up with seven key challenges based on potential urgency as well as impact, which the teams ended up working on. So the seven um, uh, uh, problem statements uh, were communication uh, because uh, everyone was finding themselves uh, newly affected, you know, what does this pandemic all mean? Um, best practices, which had to do with um, hospital and clinics in terms of how we treat people, in terms of how we test for the virus. Uh, personal protective equipment, you know, what to wear and what makes a lot of sense. Uh, safe behaviors, how do you uh, do social distancing? What's the right um, uh, uh, distance? What's the right um, uh, spacing of people? Um, also looking at vulnerable populations, people uh, like the elderly who are most susceptible uh, to the pandemic. Um, we also looked at um, how to reinvent learning. You know, a lot of schools um, had to move very quickly to find out how to teach virtually. Some schools, of course, some universities are already quite good at it, uh, but others had to just um, uh, go as fast as they could to catch up. And then fin uh, finally, um, job losses and things like mental and financial health as well. So, you know, this was an exercise that we started. We had an open call and out of more than 5,500 people who were registered, uh, we ended up having to select only 300 because it was impossible to uh, get everyone who wanted to join involved uh, so that uh, the, the program could still be well organized. Uh, and we could make forward progress. Uh, we had um, uh, organized the teams into uh, three regions of the world. Uh, so they were designed by uh, time zone. We had the Americas, we had Europe and Africa, and then Asia Pacific and Australia. And basically working 24 hours a day uh, to focus on each of the seven challenges. The seven challenges were actually duplicated in all three areas uh, because interestingly enough, um, each area had different needs, different concerns, different background, different cultures, and we ended up with a real diverse set of um, solutions. Uh, one of the things that we found 
was that um, design is especially transformative, especially in our ability to collaborate with other disciplines so that the solutions that uh, we arrive at were not only creative, but we also had the skill sets from the medical industry, uh, from uh, people uh, with social sciences backgrounds, uh, and other key disciplines uh, as well, so that when we move forward with concepts, uh, you know, they were not just innovative, but they were also practical and they were meaningful and, and something that could be actually created in either physical form or, or digital form and which could be given to the public and launched to make a real impact. Um, you know, so, so this is really important. Uh, we ended up with, um, you know, some solutions related to innovative, uh, PPE concepts. Uh, we had an awareness and communications campaign uh, that was developed from this effort, uh, and even a navigation app to show people how to avoid crowds. Uh, but Rohit, I want to just emphasize that right now, perhaps the more relevant question uh, should be, how will we design to focus on post-COVID? Uh, because as you know, everything is trying to start to open up again. Governments are trying to do what they can uh, to open up their economies. We know that there's no cure. So we also know that the virus will be with us possibly for a long time to come. So the question is, how can we design to live with COVID? You know, and this is really important because, um, you know, as I mentioned, everyone, and it really doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is. Everyone in the world has been impacted by this whole pandemic, you know, and it's been a difficult time for most people. As designers, we have to remember that even though a lot has changed over the past several months, um, people's basic needs and their wants really have not changed. So long as we stay true to the values that are the most important to people, um, then we'll continue to provide solutions which will help them to achieve their longer-term objectives. We know that people want to be healthy, they want longer life, and also a higher quality of life. They want more time on their hands so they can spend it doing things that they love. Um, people have been hurt economically, so they want better value for their money. They still want to spend things on what makes them happy. And they want to enjoy opportunities with their families, you know, their friends, their loved ones. Um, I think none of that has changed. What I believe that COVID-19 has really helped most of us to discover is what's important to us in life. You know, so I think design really has a great opportunity as well uh, in the post-COVID environment in terms of how do we make people um, uh, have a higher quality of life, even though the pandemic will still be with us. So that's that's some really great uh, kind of activities that David uh, WDO uh, actually organized. And I'm sure that there will be really creative, interesting solutions that will come out to combat uh, the, the existing situation. So moving from COVID uh, to David, your personal professional journey. So from G to Tupperware to WDO, can you run us through your entire journey? Uh, sure, Rohit. Uh, thanks for the question. Um, so to begin, I would say that my professional journey actually started a number of years before GE. In fact, when I graduated 
with my degree in industrial design. Uh, I had attended Carnegie Mellon University in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, I immediately worked for a company called Fisher Scientific, which is well known for making laboratory and scientific equipment. My first boss at the time, his name was Don Graham. Uh, he actually ended up becoming one of my major mentors of my career. Uh, when I first started, he asked me whether I was planning to go and get some additional schooling. You know, of course, for me, I scratched my head. Uh, I asked what he meant because I had just graduated, you know. Uh, but his comment was that, yes, you're done with your schooling, but your education actually starts right now. So I thought that was really an interesting perspective. You know, that's something that has really stayed with me for many years. He mentioned that the company has uh, or had an education benefit, uh, which paid 100% for additional schooling that I would be interested to do, uh, provided that I achieved, you know, certain grades like an A or a B in my coursework. Uh, he emphasized that not every company offers such a, a, an amazing benefit. Uh, and if I didn't utilize it, you know, no one would pay me for the money that the company didn't spend on my behalf. Uh, you know, plus the further benefit is that any training or any additional degree I was able to earn, uh, I would take with me if I ever left the company. You know, I thought that was really remarkable. So finally, I decided to go back to school, you know, with his blessing and with his encouragement. Uh, and I actually ended up going to school continuously for many years. And when I say many years, it could be like a span of 20 years or so. Uh, it's interesting. Once you're kind of in the groove, you know, when you're used to going to class, even though you're working during the day, you get home, you have to do your schoolwork. Um, and then when you reach the end of the semester and you're not going to school, you know, suddenly in the evenings, you find you have all this time you're not used to. So you find the next class and you find your next curriculum to fill that gap. Um, I started to go back to school for a second bachelor's in mechanical engineering. Um, so it's very interesting that when someone is coming from the engineering side and wants to study industrial design, they are offered the ability normally to go for a master's degree straight on. But for myself, that wasn't an option. You know, they, they were telling me that I didn't have enough technical uh, credits, you know, so the best that I could do was to go for a second bachelor's uh, in mechanical engineering. Um, so I did. And in my next job uh, after Fisher, uh, which was Bayer Polymers, uh, many of you might uh, know Bayer as the aspirin company, but they also have a division focused on plastics and polymers. Um, Bayer positioned themselves as a technology company, and they boasted that 80% of their employees had technical degrees. You know, I was still in school, and of course, at that time, I was not one of the 80%. So I got even more motivated to complete my degree. Uh, after I completed my degree, um, I really enjoyed it. So I decided to continue on and get my master's in engineering. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, people uh, say that you're only as good as your terminal degree. Uh, when I was uh, uh, first with my degree only in industrial design, uh, I was told in projects that I probably should not be looking at the technical side. But uh, as soon as I got my degree, they were telling me that I probably wasn't creative enough because I was too technical. 
you know, it's uh, interesting how people's uh, viewpoints change uh, as uh, you progress uh, in your uh, studies. Um, eventually, when I left Bayer and I joined GE, General Electric, um, I joined as global manager of design and vehicle engineering. Um, GE also has a plastics group. So that's uh, what I worked for, GE Automotive Plastics. And they informed me when I first joined that all GE managers are supposed to have MBAs. Of course, at that time, I didn't have one either. So they sent me back to school again. Uh, I got my second master's in international business. And this was at Tilburg University in Holland uh, because most of my projects at GE were channeled through Bergen op Zoom, uh, which is a city in Holland, uh, which uh, uh, is GE's European headquarters for plastics. Um, everything is basically evolutionary. When I graduated with my MBA, one of my professors suggested that I go for a PhD in business. Uh, but uh, to me, I said, you know what? If I'm going to uh, back to school for PhD studies, it would be something related in technology and especially in materials, because really that's been my background. I've been working in plastics practically my whole career. So this professor, by coincidence, he knew and he introduced me uh, to a department head at uh, Cranfield University in England, uh, which by the, by the way was the school that he had graduated from. That's where he got his PhD. And this uh, professor was looking for a PhD student with a background in polymers. Uh, so what happened next was I, I flew over, I met her, I found that we had a lot of the same values, a, a lot of the same interests in the subject matter. And so I ended up enrolling and six years later completed my PhD uh, from that school. Uh, so that's the long story of my uh, educational background. Uh, from there, I joined Tupperware, where I currently hold the position of Vice President Global R&D, uh, where we focus on many different technologies for new products. It goes well beyond plastics, uh, including materials which are very sustainable. And also, we broaden our scope of opportunity, looking at other technologies like the Internet of Things, for example. Uh, and we also focus on products that are related not only to food storage, but also to cooking and also food conservation. Great. That's, that's quite some exciting journey. But tell me something, David, that from Tupperware to WTO, what has been that one driving force for you? And how did you manage to align the goals of both these organizations? Yes, um, sure. Uh, Tupperware to WDO. I would say that there's really not much of a conflict between both organizations because both really have very similar values. Those of you who know about WDO or the World Design Organization know that it's focused on making the world a better place and it's guided by United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or which we uh, refer to as UN SDGs. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details of the SDGs in this interview, but I do want to point out a couple of them, um, especially where there is some strong overlap. Um, so to begin, uh, if we take SDG number 12, for example, which stands for Responsible Consumption and Production, uh, this means we should encourage the efficient use of resources, 
we should look at sustainable alternatives, and we should apply responsible behaviors. Um, I'm actually very happy that I've been able to work on very interesting projects at Tupperware. Uh, and one of the areas that we focus on is to move people away from single-use packaging and into hard, durable products, products that can be used over and over again. You know, in fact, our products are designed for a lifetime of use, and we give always a lifetime warranty with our product. Um, I often get the question, well, what does a lifetime actually mean? You know, and it means different things to different people. Uh, but the way that we define it is that a consumer will get at least 50 years of continuous use. So what that means is that if something is designed to be used every day, or even, let's say, several times a day, if you have several meals, they can utilize this product with that frequency over the course of 50 years, and the product should function the same way as it did on the day that they purchased it. You know, so that's pretty significant. You know, and uh, the warranty means that we would replace the product at no additional cost if it didn't meet that criteria. We're also focused on SDG 9, which is Innovation, Industry, and Infrastructure. Uh, and this is defined as strengthening the connection between design, technology, and R&D. And we also combine that with SDG 3, which is good health and well-being, uh, because we apply food science and we apply materials technology uh, to make our products more innovative uh, so that food can last longer, um, it, it can stay fresher longer uh, in storage and promote healthy eating. Um, also, SDG 6. Uh, which is clean water and sanitation. Um, everyone knows Tupperware for being a company which sells food storage containers, but not many people know that water filtration is actually one of our biggest products in the world in terms of sales and revenue. Um, you know, so we also uh, look at water. We use biopolymers, other sustainable materials, uh, even some with natural antibacterial effects to promote better hygiene. And uh, these are only some of the common overlaps. And I would say that there are many more uh, that probably we don't have time for. But at Tupperware, we talk about guiding people through space and through time. You know, we know how to organize people so that they can have more space in their homes and in their kitchens. And time, time is one of the most precious and valuable um, commodities that people have. It's the only thing you never get back. So if we, if we can save the consumer time by making their everyday tasks more simple and more convenient, and of course, more time savings, we can really give the consumer a lot of daily value. So both Tupperware and WDO have a very strong focus on sustainability. WDO is focused on creating a better world through design, and Tupperware is also interested in creating a better world to be environmentally responsible and to provide a better quality of life for consumers. Wow, these are really exciting insights. I didn't know the Tupperware products that I have is is got such a large uh, shelf life. Well, unfortunately, most of the time with my Tupperware products are that we misplace them quite often, either at offices <laughs> or, or or somewhere. But that's that's really exciting in terms of uh, you know how a company looks at it. I I wasn't even aware about the amount of work that you are doing on uh, the, the water conservation side of it. So while you're doing all of these interesting things, one, one question that comes to my mind, David, is how has the world of industrial design 
evolved since you first entered this field? Yeah, the world of uh, ID, industrial design, has, has, in my opinion, changed pretty significantly uh, since I graduated and since I came into the profession. Uh, I would say that the profession has a much higher level of sophistication today uh, than back then. Uh, when I first graduated, we were focused primarily on product design, you know, so product development, trying to make the best product we could for the manufacturability and for the cost and for the user function. Uh, but if we look around today, there are specializations of design that didn't really exist back then. Um, if we take a couple of them as examples, user interface, for example, and user experience, UX and UI, um, you know, these are these are one of the most prevalent focus areas today for designers. Um, you know, and if you look at um, universal design, for example, and human factors, they were just really emerging uh, at the time I was coming out of school. Uh, we were industrial designers, which were focused primarily on products. Um, in fact, I would tell you that a lot of companies didn't even know what an industrial designer was. Uh, I had mentioned earlier that um, my first job out of the university was with a company called Fisher Scientific. And um, I will tell you that my business card actually read industrial engineer uh, because that's the closest that came to industrial designer. They just didn't have that specific categorization of the profession. Uh, but interestingly, again, if you look today, industry now has found a strong value in design because companies have found out that good design can sell, you know, can sell whatever your product is or your service or whatever. So in many places, design has become somewhat of a buzzword uh, in terms of design strategy. If you're going to be making product, you know, you have to have a strategy because, uh, you know, it, uh, it has to cover uh, all of the points that uh, from a hum human centered point of view needs to be addressed. Um, and, uh, you know, so design strategy has come into play in many corporate initiatives relating to both brand as well as the product. And um, most of you who have gone through business school uh, know that leading business schools have all jumped into the game as well. And they've taken the opportunity to include design thinking into their business curricula. Um, but beyond what we design every day, one of the uh, reasons why I like being involved with the World Design Organization is that it focuses specifically on social improvements. Improvements, again, that are guided by the UN SDGs, looking to solve the greatest issues for the greatest number of people. So design can really focus on providing benefit in much larger areas, you know, and with greater impact than we ever have um, had the opportunity to do before. Uh, design has also adopted a strong collaborative and multidisciplinary culture. Uh, design research is much more widely used to expand you know, our capabilities and our understanding and our knowledge of what is important to consumers. Uh, the discipline is highly engaged also in issues surrounding things like the circular economy. Uh, with solutions based on principles of designing out waste, designing out pollution, keeping products and materials in continuous use, and regenerating natural systems. Uh, so design is about designing much more than just objects today. The profession has an important calling, in my opinion, for the 21st century and also into the future. So that's an interesting insight uh, that, that you gave in terms of how industrial design has evolved. 
in fact one of my uh, understanding david of the field is that industrial design as a term arose after the second world war uh, though it's been a part of the economy uh, since the industrial revolution what what i have known is the 1900s the term efficiency and standardization came up and towards the 1980s we moved towards minimalism and aesthetics what are the terms that according to you define the industrial design of this era yes if we also remember the bauhaus uh we must also consider um terms like mass production uh simplicity truth of materials um the bauhaus was um uh looking at a model where people of every background and every demographic could um enjoy products that could improve their life regardless of their socioeconomic status um you mentioned minimalism and you mentioned aesthetics and um they're definitely important but i don't attribute those terms only with the 1980s as uh, you had um mentioned because really there's still some of the design values that are existing today when we think about today and we think about this era especially when we were coming out of the pandemic i like the words design for humanity so in wdo terms this means to design for a better world and design is getting involved in so many areas where we have never been engaged with before uh so this includes not only social improvements but also in establishing design policy which is something extremely important for the future we know that design can be a powerful tool for many things for social economic and cultural changes uh it can also serve as a guide to grow both economic as well as industrial success uh and it has the ability to break down long-term social norms and cultural barriers um things that limit progress on basic quality of life and there have been a number of nations which have established uh design policies or some that are currently working on design policies um which is really a process by which governments can translate their political visions into action plans to efficiently use and manage their natural resources that are available and also grow their economic aspirations but personally i believe that design has a higher calling um we are um charged to focus on what provides the highest benefit so that the impact of our contribution uh can be felt globally uh in my opinion design policy should really transcend the simple business objectives of local economic progress uh and industry competitive which are normally found in national policies innovation based economic growth is definitely important but we need to focus on global issues which are most important to the greatest number of people even regardless of national origins so issues like for example global income um uh you know there's a lot of income inequality there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of discrimination all of these items uh that focus on basic human dignity rather than national related interests i think we're all in agreement that there is 
a lot of suffering in the world today, and there are great opportunities for design to really make a difference. You know, there are issues like climate change, uh, issues like uh, infectious diseases, the global pandemic uh, that we're currently experiencing. And we already see how global issues can create economic stagnation uh, in corners of the world. Uh, it's imperative that altogether we agree upon and we prioritize the many global issues where design can make a significant impact. You know, and it's important also that we look at um, better data and metrics uh, because currently there is a lack of statistical information, even on the design profession. Uh, you know, and I think that there's an urgent need to begin collecting detailed statistical data so that we have a clear picture on the current design landscape uh, and on future trends. You know, we don't even have good statistical information, for example, on the number of students enrolled and graduating from universities around the world. You know, what are the size and what are the number of design firms? Um, you know, what are the number of uh, design employees, for example, by country? And, 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 and what's the projected growth? So, you know, we need to collect data on our profession, and we also need to develop the means to monitor the effect of design on social and economic improvements. You know, there has been a lot of talk about connecting uh, um, uh, KPIs, for example, uh, key performance indicators uh, into world bodies like the UN so that we can track things like G uh, GDP or um, Human Development Index, HDI. You know, so these are all things to come. But uh, uh, a design policy, I believe, is really important for us to get um, involved in so that we can really plan for a future where design can have a good uh, influence and a good um, contribution. So that's an interesting view on how industrial design has shaped. And I'm sure that, as you mentioned, uh, there are organizations which are taking a view of this in their KPIs, focusing on sustainability. And, and with that, I am intrigued to understand that with sustainability being at the core of industrial design, where do you see the field in the future? Yes, on the topic of sustainability, I envision a strong emphasis, first of all, on education. Uh, part is on teaching responsible production and consumption, um, but also the sharing of best practices and case studies um, so that we can raise design's understanding, uh, increase our capability, and also, you know, the visibility of what design can offer. Um, and in this day and age, I must say that we also have the responsibility to combat misinformation uh, when it comes to uh, what is or is not sustainable and what are good practices. Um, I think there's a world of opportunity to rethink and redesign uh, all the different things that uh, we are involved with. Um, and we need to return to basics, you know, and a return to our core responsibilities. And I want to explain a little bit what this means. Designers who have been around for a few decades will remember and recognize the acronyms such as DFA and DFM. You know, they stand for design for assembly and design for manufacturing. You know, there's even a combined term, DFMA, design for manufacturing and assembly. Um, but there have been some terms that have gotten a little bit lost, you know, terms like DFD, which stand for design for disassembly. 
you know, and this is understanding that in order to take a product at the end of its life cycle and in order to recycle it, we need to be able to take that product apart and separate the different materials so that we can reprocess them into new products. You know, one of the things uh, that I like to use as an example are toothbrushes. Um, whenever I go into a pharmacy to pick up a new toothbrush, I'm really astonished to see how many materials this little utensil is made of. You know, sometimes up to six or seven different materials. Um, the next time you purchase a toothbrush, maybe you should take the time to observe it as well. Um, and you cannot take the components that are molded together apart, which means the product cannot be recycled easily. You know, if you look at the data, you know, there are 3.5 billion toothbrushes that are sold around the world every year. You know, so we really have to address these issues. For issues like this, we really don't have much time to waste. Um, in general, though, I would say that the design profession, um, as well as most of the people in the world, are more tuned in to sustainable objectives than they ever have before. You know, and repurposed and re, um, recycled products, even upcycled products have become popular, you know, and um, uh, there's a movement called steampunk, which uses a lot of uh, leftover junk. And this continues to be cool as well. Wow, that's, that's really cool. I haven't observed some of these things. And I'm sure next time that I'm going to pick up a product, I'm, I'm going to look at it from, from this angle for sure. <laughs> so... Moving from sustainability, the WDO has been a prime organization and at the forefront of responsible consumption and production. What is the organization's role going to be in bringing about these changes in mass markets? Yes, um, I have a lot to say on this one, but I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. Um, it's an important time for the field of design, you know, and I consider myself a very privileged and honored to have um, been recently elected uh, to lead the World Design Organization beginning in the fall of next year. Uh, it'll be important, of course, to continue to build upon our past history and to guide our profession towards engaging design to solve some of the world's most complex problems. The responsible consumption and production, uh, which you asked about, is SDG 12. But I guess I prefer to reshape your question a little bit to include all SDGs, meaning how can the design profession and how can WDO make an impact to help achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a whole? You know, it's interesting. Today, we live in a world, uh, it's characterized by unprecedented population growth. We have decreasing natural resources and we have continued rapid technological changes. Uh, in this context, the World Design Organization, I believe, is fully engaged and is um, uh, ready to play a leadership role on some of our planet's biggest um, issues, you know, uh, related to economic issues, social and environmental changes. Um, and that's because we have um, a large network created by our di diverse member organizations around the world. Um, and we have long-standing pillars of professional design associations. We have design promotional organizations and educational institutions. But we also have a very strong cities agenda. We've just recently added um, city memberships to our uh, pillars. 
Um, and we have a program that's now become very well recognized, the World Design Capital Program that offers a platform for sharing ideas and also, you know, stories, storytelling from around the world. Um, and we have a growing corporate membership as well. You know, we have companies like uh, Samsung, like Brown, uh, like Dassault that are our members, for example. And, and corporate members, they, they inject the promise of um, partnership and, 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 and um, sponsorship as well, uh, including offering their industrial perspective, uh, you know, to the dialogue and to opportunities for solutions. Um, many people don't know this, but during the time of uh, our pandemic over the past couple months, the WDO has been working very, very hard, very feverishly, building partnerships with other world bodies. And this includes UN agencies, um, for example, the UN Habitat, and also UN Women, um, and also uh, with the World Packaging Organization, uh, we've been building uh, um, relationships with cities, uh, believe it or not, even the International Space Station. Uh, and you'll see a project coming out on that front sometime soon. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say also that we have uh, taken the responsibility to apply for NGO recognized status within the World Trade Organization as well, um, and also looking to reinforce our UN consultative status, which the WDO has had since the 1970s. Um, some of the projects are extremely interesting that we are looking to begin engaging. You know, the UN Women, for example, uh, is a very, very interesting project, a very important project. Uh, looking to utilize design as a tool to develop solutions for combating gender inequality. You know, and there are really two parts to that problem. First, uh, the UN women tell us that a majority of gender discrimination is born out of generations, literally hundreds of years of cultural acceptance. So many in certain regions don't even know that there's a problem with how women are treated. And this offers design a great opportunity for communication. Right. And secondly, how can design offer a gateway into behavioral change? You know, how can we show that there's a better way to treat people and a better way to do things? You know, so 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 very in, uh, interesting and important projects that we're looking to get, engage in. Um, but back to environmental sustainability, because that was really your original question. Recently, the WDO has been awarded a size, uh, you know, a, a fairly sizable grant from the Canadian government to create some tools guided by UN SDGs for corporations and organizations uh, to use to maximize their understanding and minimize their effect on the environment. You know, so sustainability is really top of mind for most companies today. And some of our member um, um, corporations, for example, have implemented very strong initiatives either independently or Together with WDO, uh, together with WDO, uh, to work towards sustainability objectives. You know, unfortunately, we can't do everything at once, uh, but we continue to prioritize and work towards engaging one thing at a time. We hope you liked that show. Like we mentioned before, this is the first part of our special episode with David Kusuma. Tune into the second part of our episode on Thursday, 2nd of July, where we dig deeper into conversations of designing with dynamics 
and designing with social responsibility. We also get interesting insights into the questions which were raised by our audience. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed our show. Do write to us on ads at the rate avantika.edu.in. We look forward to your opinions, feedbacks and suggestions of speakers you would like us to host on this show. Do tune in our channel next week on Wednesday for a new story on Hub Hopper or wherever you get your podcast from. Make sure you follow us on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and tune in with us on our journey and don't forget to share it with your friends.